Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by a three-time special guest, Andy Kelly. How's it going? Hello, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's a, a great honour. You're always a very, um, our listeners very much enjoy uh, your episodes. This is your third one, so uh, great to have you. Andy is formerly of, of, of PSM2, PSM3, PC Gamer and The Gamer. And uh, we thought this would be a good time to do another episode with Andy because he's moving on from games media after 18 years. Uh, so we're going to talk to Andy a bit about his career, and then he's going to take us through a few game review scores that he feels differently about in retrospect. Um, so it should be a, a fun one. If anyone remembers our second episode of the podcast, game review scores we got wrong, kind of like that, but uh, Andy's version. So Andy, what's it like to leave journalism after around two decades? How are you feeling about it? Yeah, it's um, it's really weird because my entire adult life has been spent doing this, this job, so I, I know nothing else. I'm fully institutionalized so it's going to be a bit of a uh a, a shock to the system i think i don't think it's fully sunk in yet that you know come wednesday this week i will no longer be playing a game and thinking how do i make this into content <laughs> yeah very different um yeah you are a true a true veteran like um, um it's it's almost like you moving on is feels like a sign of the times in some ways just because i kind of I suppose I don't know if I I thought you would never move on. I thought you would at some point, but um, it's still surprising. So, what kind of like twigged it for you at this point? Did you had you been thinking about moving on? Yeah, well, for a while I've wanted to sort of sidestep more into like the games industry rather than the media. Um, so, um, I mean, I guess I should say what I'm doing. Um, I'm I'm moving into PR for um, Devolver Digital, um, who's been one awesome. of my one of my favorite publishers for a long time. I really, there's very few publishers I'd want to do that job for, and I just think that mm. I, I I love the whole vibe and the games. They they're very good at curating good games, so that seems like a, a kind of way into the the larger industry. I mean, from from working for a company like that, there's probably other ways to move sideways again into some other part of the of the industry. But that, that's really the main thing. I feel like I've kind of exhausted my. I mean, I've squeezed everything I can out of writing about games for a living. I mean, 18 years is a long time to do any one thing. Um, so I just mm. feel like it's time. I don't want to say it's time for new challenges like someone on LinkedIn, <laughs> but, but it is. Mm. Oh, man, LinkedIn. Oh, it's like a whole platform of people putting out those little statements about, like, <laughs> yeah. don't underestimate Gen Zers on ability to market things on TikTok. I don't forget this. I occasionally get sort of, uh, you know, pinged from LinkedIn going, oh, someone's looking at your account. And I think, oh, maybe it's going to be someone like legit who who's kind <laughs> of like heard of, you know, read some of my you know writing or heard the podcast and, and is now looking to like instantly fast track me to be like a writer at their studio and it will always be um, some spod student at a university <laughs> who's just looking me up because they listen to the podcast and just wanted to see what my day job was. <laughs> so I feel very sort of exposed by LinkedIn. So yeah, Andy, you, you um, it's, it's interesting because I think Devolver, of course, like, you know, great publisher. Congratulations on the new role. That's awesome. Um, I always found the idea of leaving games media weirdly tricky and I always felt like the, the job fit me like a glove and was became like a big part of my identity. I'm, I'm sure it has been for you too. And so letting go of it was tough when I left PC Gamer in 2019. Did you ever think about what you'd do next in previous years? Uh, do you ever have a dream gig that you were kind of waiting for? Yeah, I mean, not really. Like, I'm not much of a, a planner or really don't look too far ahead. I'm sort of a roll with the punches, see where the, the dice fall and other such cliches kind of guy. 
Um, so, I mean, it, when the, the Devolver opportunity just kind of appeared and I just felt like, you know, it was just a, a sudden, it was almost a sudden on the spot, like realization, like, oh yeah, maybe I am a bit bored of writing about games. Maybe I do want to do something else. So I'm quite guilty of like getting into, you know, like settling into something and just coasting and being like, yeah, this is, this is nice, you know? But um, when something lands in my lap like this, I'm like, I get a sort of jolt of like, you know, energy. I'm like, oh yeah, I should do that. So it's it's one of those sort of situations. But what makes it less of a a big change for me is that the thing I enjoyed the most, especially on PC Gamer, is writing about indie games and finding small developers and covering their game and getting a buzz Mm -hmm. out of seeing them suddenly get a lot of attention out of it. So I figure like this is like, you know, an industrialized version of that for Devolver, where it's, you know, championing cool games by small developers. And, but now, mm. you know, now in a more formal way with the might of like, you know, a big company like Devolver behind it. So it's like, it's, it's in some ways, it's quite similar to what I've done before. But obviously now I can only be nice about Devolver games. <laughs> so <laughs> it's more limited in some way. Yeah. I kind of get it though. Like it's, um, I, you know, I work with a few smaller developers in my role, and like <clears throat> they are legitimately happy whenever their games are covered by the press. And you know, your ability to get other people excited about the game is like a huge part of what the the job is, and it is it is pretty creative in that respect. So I think it will it will click for you. Um, I say the thing I always found is that in the UK, like the avenues for what you do next after games media always seemed a bit <clears throat> bit more opaque because, like in the, in the UK, like um. You don't get the same opportunities US journos do, where they would just find themselves in like writing jobs at major studios or whatever. That just seems to happen quite often in the US, whereas in the UK, I don't feel like I've seen many examples of that. So it's a lot harder to kind of figure out what the next thing is, you know. Um, I don't know if you have mm-hmm. any thoughts on that, Andy, if, if that's something you never thought about. Like, oh, you know, having a writing job would be cool, but I don't know. It's just something I thought about as uh, from a media background. Yeah, there's definitely less of that in, in the UK, I guess, because the industry's smaller and um, if, you, if you go to like an industry event in you know New York or LA, there's probably fifty times more people there than there is at a, something in London. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, there's other avenues of industry type um, words related jobs I'd be you know interested in looking at at some point. I have thought about doing game, narrative games writing stuff, but I, I follow quite a lot of narrative designers and writers on Twitter and. Um, you know, they make it sound like quite hard and like a bit of a, a <laughs> battle against. Um, it's not just writing a story and then some people make levels based on it. It's very like a, you know, you can spend ages aching over some big plot point that you love and then because the level wasn't working or the pacing wasn't right, it just gets taken out. I hear so many stories about games writers having stuff just cut out and sl- slashed out of a game. That sounds quite harrowing. So I've been put, mm. off, put off that by following lots of writers on social media <laughs> yeah you also have to be like a mega immersed in that scene i think to get the breaks as well where it's mm. like yeah i've been i've wrote like i wrote like 15 twine games this year and i'm like well that's that's not the headspace i'm in so uh yeah, yeah. um <laughs> you really earned your place at the table you know um, i wrote one twine game and abandoned it halfway through because <laughs> i hated, hated my own prose so that was good um, um, I, I go was going to say actually about that thing about the kind of like what happens next. I don't know if either of you had this, but you know when when I first started, maybe a couple of years into the job, it did sort of dawn on me that there was like no one who was forty doing the job, 
And I was thinking, oh, that's weird. Like, what, wonder what happens to everyone. That sort of, you know, there's lots of people my age, and maybe some sort of early thirties people were like editors or whatever. But it's like, where do you go? Especially as the mag started sort of disappearing. And I remember it being actually quite shocking to me when Greener, Mark Green, who was like my first editor on Endgamer, were like when he left games to go and work on like he did like sort of um, running websites for various museums like he actually ended up at i think the national rail museum in york mm. doing their web stuff and then i remember thinking like well that's what's that about you know you've got this huge skill skill set and all this knowledge and you don't get to use it like i can't imagine myself ever getting to that position but it does happen i think you kind of get to you know maybe the 10 year mark or maybe the 15 year mark or in your case 18 year mark and there is a sort of like a oh yeah, there, there's like a natural end to this. Like I can't think of any major exceptions to that rule, in, definitely in the UK. Yeah, that, that's accurate. I think this, this seems to be like a cutoff point where people feel the, the urge to move. But I mean, I'm. it's hard to, like I said, I don't really look ahead too much. So it's hard to say like if this opportunity didn't land on my lap, then would I still be, you know, writing features about games and when I hit 40, mm. but I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe there is just a natural point where people in this line of work are just nudged elsewhere. <laughs> I got the same thing. It was kind of like tied to the fact that when I was on PC Gamer as editor in chief, I was there thinking, well, I don't think there's another website that I personally like as much as PC Gamer. So it's not like there was seemed like a natural stepping stone. And there, there's less media around now than there was before, Matthew, which, like you mentioned, that's kind of a factor. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like the. I could keep doing it, but I just don't see what the end point is. And when I left PC Gamer and came back on Tech Radar, I was like, well, this, you know, it was it was really nice, a really nice team to work with and a massive website. But it was definitely a sense of like, uh, I can't really see a way forward in media anymore. I just, mm. that, that the past have kind of disappeared. Is that sort of what happened to you as well, Matthew? I, mean, I think I'd probably still be like grasping on if if, if I had a, a, a viable way. Like, you know, I've, I've had a few potential routes back into print hilariously which i really did sort of um and r over and i was thinking that i was like i just can't i just can't do that to myself anymore you know i I just have to move on and and you know it's just that bit's done and you know i can find a a different way to keep like one foot in that world you know through this podcast and the occasional bit of freelance and that actually keeps me like keeps me happy Uh, i might feel differently without the pod admittedly but um yeah, it's more just, I just think it's mad that there are all these people who I consider like legends of journalism, both who came before us and, you know, who I'm like lucky enough to call my peers, who are now not doing that job. And it's like, you know, okay, this is a ridiculous metaphor, but it's like, you know, Mr. Incredible in The Incredibles when he's just doing his office job and you're like, this got this person can do all this other stuff that you don't know about like it really tickles me like you know I went to um mark green's wedding and like listening to his colleagues talk about him and their perception of him and it's like that's so different like this guy is so fucking funny at writing about mario like that is <laughs> that's like his superpower but like that is that is not what you do in the civil service <laughs> you know it's 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 just sort of wild that people who did do it once are now just hidden away they're like sort of sleeper cells dotted all over the world doing other jobs and it just i don't know it tickles me <laughs> yeah i was curious andy like um i suppose as well you've seen a lot of waves of peers uh sort of go by right like um 
the world around you sort of shifts a little bit. Do you have any kind of like reflections on that, I guess, how strange it is to see generations of writers and editors kind of move on around you? Yeah, I mean, the natural trajectory for someone in games media is to, you know, staff writer, section editor, editor, editor-in-chief, whatever. But I always actively resisted rising above the sort of features editor writer level because I, I've had never had any interest in doing admin or managing people or dealing with ads or dealing with, you know, the suits upstairs. So I, I f- sort of froze myself, cryogenically frozen as a features writer, um, <laughs> which I don't actually regret at all because uh, I've seen, you know, I watched a lot of uh, writers who I worked alongside becoming editors and sort of lamenting their, um, you know, lack of time to to be creative and write stuff as much or at all. Um, and that, mm. that's the reason I did the job. It's never to to be in charge of anything. I've got no interest in running a games magazine. Some people are, you know, built for that. Whereas whereas I just wanna just wanted to write. So um that that made me feel a bit odd and that I was kind of there. You know, I'd hit I'd hit that mm. ceiling and I was just, you know, stuck there whilst people around me were ascending in a you know, flying out of the building like the ghosts in Ghostbusters when they open the uh, <laughs> the containment unit. <laughs> so that that was a bit odd, but um, occasionally I felt like, should I be, you know, some kind of careerist guy? Should I be trying to climb the ladder? But I I, I look back on my career in, in game shows yeah. and I'm I don't regret, you know, refu- you know, refusing the, that kind of path. It's weird because like the skills that that make you good at that job like the 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 writing about games and and being a a good presence in a magazine none of those skills speak to being able to like manage a magazine the idea that suddenly like a writer magically becomes like a good manager like i i I was not good at the management side of running a magazine i was fine at the ideas and like corralling people and and you know helping the kind of you know, creative vision or, or whatever, you know, wanky thing you want to say. But in terms of the nuts and bolts, you know, I'm terrible at management games. <laughs> you know, the idea, I should have looked at that and gone, maybe I shouldn't be in charge of, like, the fate of flesh and blood humans. I mean, not um, to, like, be on the spot, Matthew, but I don't think you've paid me for the podcast this month still. I think the money's still sat in your account, <laughs> which I'm not saying that tells the whole story, but does it tell, <laughs> does it tell part of the story? Uh, yeah, well, that's exactly it. I mean, like, luckily, I wasn't in charge of like staff pay on any. That was futures deal, but yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, you literally give me a number, and I mean, the hilarious thing about that is I paid everyone else, uh, at, and I just didn't do it for for you at the same time. I have no idea why. I got distracted, probably by some snacks, and um, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I think it is true. I think Andy, you made all the right moves. I think because it means that like. When you leave games media, people will remember you for, you know, specific pieces you've written. Whereas I think that, like you say, the longer people go on, the more it kind of like blurs out your role as a writer and, and you're mm. writing less. And so people don't associate you with your work as much. So, yeah, I totally mm. get it. Um, Andy, I was curious, though, like I, I do enjoy that as a gamer, I can click on your your name and see a whole list of articles and you will... There's like some at games I consider key Andy Kelly texts, I guess. Um, <laughs> are you sure you've truly got L.A. Noir, Alan Wake, and Max Payne features out of your system? There are other <laughs> games too, but like, um, yeah, are you going to miss covering like your your favorite games in that much detail? Yeah, I think. I mean, those games I have written about a hell of a lot for so many outlets. I think I think I've well and truly bled that stone dry like there's nothing else i can say about ellie noir max Payne, 
else heartbreak alien isolation europe <laughs> european truck simulator 2 um yeah <laughs> all that stuff yeah. but I, I, yeah I've, I've i feel like i've well and truly got everything out of my system that I've, every thought i've ever had about any game that i'm interested <laughs> in i've put on the internet somewhere like I've really, there's yeah. no unfinished business mm. here. I'm not going to come back uh, to haunt game journalism. I'm done. <laughs> I've finished. I've written it all. <laughs> I've written every word and thunk every thought. <laughs> I was curious actually because you, you do seem like you are a bit of a a slight Nintendo head on the side. Like, um, do you ever kind of feel like you missed out on writing about Nintendo much? Were you ever interested in writing about Nintendo more than you did? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I, I started with Nintendo. Um, you know, NES, SNES, N64 trajectory. But if for some reason, yeah, I never... I did a little bit of freelance for N-Gamer, um, O&M. But yeah, for some reason, Nintendo... I was never an, you know... Uh, in terms of writing, I was never a Nintendo guy. But on the Gamer, I've been writing a lot more about it, purely because I'm playing the Switch. You know, Switch is like my main console at the moment. I love it. Um, so yeah, I've had a bit of a, like... I've written more about Nintendo in the last year than I have in my whole career, weirdly enough just by virtue of sitting there and thinking, mm. what should I write about? Oh, yeah, I was playing that on the Switch, so I'll write about that. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> well, you've got 24 pages of bylines on the gamer, so definitely recommend people go and dig out your page so you've been writing about non-stop Andy Kelly features, which is cool. <laughs> um, this has been quite a tough year for media generally. It's always a little thankless, I think, working in games media, but it's tougher to break into, and there aren't as many gigs around. Uh, more people seem to want to be influencers, I guess, younger people. What do you think will happen in games media in the next 10 years or so? Do you have any kind of like feelings about where you think it should go, that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm quite bad at um, sort of predicting the the way things go. I mean, when I, when I was on working in print, I you know could never have fore- foreseen um, you know the rise of Twitch and YouTube as the main platforms like that that completely blindsided me um and mm. to to even possibly imagine where people speaking and writing and having thoughts and critiquing games is gonna go i guess um i mean youtube long form youtube essays are like the hotness right now and i do um i say watch a lot of them i basically treat them like podcasts so if someone's done a four-hour video about the resident evil series i'll stick it on while i'm doing other stuff and do it in chunks um, so maybe that's more of a thing, like, yeah, like long form audio, I feel like, um, slash video um, seems to be like yeah. a, a way for people. Mm. I mean, it really is just people taking what PC Gamer used to excel at doing long form essays on video games and just making it into a video slash podcast is, you know, it's nothing new. It's just been presented in a, a way that more f- maybe fits more easily into your, your existence. Like, you know, you don't have to stop and pick up a magazine or scroll down a scroll a long article on an ipad or a laptop you can just have it on while you're doing other stuff i think that's that's probably feels like the future to me like yeah games media as a as a way of like fitting around your life rather than being something you stop and do Mm. yeah i can kind of see that i think i'm watching a lot more of that stuff too and i would have said five years ago that i would never watch that stuff um so yeah habits i think even if you're a little bit older, can definitely morph around that. I wish I could make it, but it's so fucking intensive making videos. That's the thing. Like, um, mm. I feel like this is a good space for games media people to go into. But yeah, like, to get to the point where it's kind of profitable or kind of worth doing, that's the sort of struggle, I guess. Um, video is yeah. really... I, I did a video at PC Gamer for about maybe just less than a year. Um, they basically said, do you want to do some videos? 
alongside your writing work and I used to love premiere and editing and doing video stuff but when it became a job and I had deadlines and and stuff like that I really lost the love for it and I, I sort of hate making videos now it's like made me fully fall <laughs> out of love of, out of love with the medium um so yeah like people who do those you know intricately constructed multi-hour video essays I've got you know massive respect for them because that's a really you know quite tiresome making videos and premiere is a god-awful piece of software that crashes all the time and yeah so i'm i, I don't think i'll be embracing that medium again anytime <laughs> soon <laughs> did you just did you make a video about um about facing worlds and unreal tournament when you were on pc gamer andy i think i came across that the other day when i was just looking for stuff yeah yeah i did yeah it was basically just my my kind of features just done in video form and i was never fully comfortable with it though like i i was trying to when I was doing the, the voiceovers, I was trying to do like a kind of, I was trying to be like the Mark Cousins of video games, you know, like <laughs> YouTube's all shouty and noisy and I was trying to be like a bit more uh, low key and a bit more softly spoken and, and try to sort of carve a bit of a niche that way. But I think I just, a lot of the comments just said, this guy sounds depressed or whatever. So, <laughs> oh yeah. God, the, the co- comments on your voice are just yeah. the worst because they just cut Cut, cut to your core um i always used to get because i was trying to sort of I, I i when i started doing the vo for rps i was really paranoid that it sounded very very low energy so i'd sort of do a, a more high energy version of my voice which sounded very strained and because of that all the comments would always say this guy sounds like he's crying why is this guy crying while he's doing this script because i i don't know what element it was that it drew out my voice but oh man it's so hard to to find like a a voice without either sound like people go too far the other way and sound like a top gear presenter you know that like really yeah presentary over enthusiastic voice and then you can sound sort of near comatose like i did i was just trying to find (laughs) out i just really like that kind of narration a bit like you know like a chris morris monologue and blue jam or something like yeah like low (laughs) and like slow delivery and kind of relaxing type thing but i thought that would that could have been a thing on youtube but i guess not who's the video essay noah someone something yeah he's great noah caldwell gervais he's like my favorite essay guy yeah, I quite like his stuff though. Like, given the effort I put into sort of matching my footage and like really trying to make my VO sound more polished, I, it always sort of infuriates me a little bit that like because his script is like so lo-fi, there's just like errors in it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. he just records himself stumbling over words and then goes back and starts sentences again. Doesn't even cut it out. Like that's just so confident in your material. And the footage is like, just um, random as well, isn't it? It's just yeah, unassociated pile of, of yeah. yeah i mean i i listen i watch his videos like podcasts they're some yeah. of my favorite like do the washing up with something on my headphones type type videos yeah, there's yeah. one on mad max is especially good i don't know if, if if you don't don't know noah caldwell gervais's work watch his video on um, avalanche's mad max game it's really great and made me i watched it and then i went and played it for 40 hours and finished it like it really it's just a, a great bit of just writing slash mm. speaking. Well, there you go, Matthew. That's how we could succeed in video is just like fucking talk and talk and talk and then just stick uh, 40 minutes of capture in the background. We can I make was, that work, I reckon. My video, by comparison, it was so try hard. Like all these naff, like visual gags where I'd be 
like trying to freeze frame it to draw certain things out of the scripts. So I just it's just not what people wanted. I never I never <laughs> understood video. <laughs> well, you always want to cut out the erms, your erms from these podcasts, and I don't think they're a big deal. I think keeping those in wouldn't upset anyone. Mm. Um, you know, we wouldn't get like bad reviews on iTunes saying this guy won't stop going fucking earn halfway through a <laughs> sentence <laughs> it's not gonna happen I, I wouldn't worry about it but uh yeah I get you um so on a uh on a cheerier note Andy what's your memory of starting in games media I think I did ask you a bit about this the first time you came on last year but what was Bath like at the time and what was it like doing it so young yeah I mean I look back on that as like a really great time I mean I, I was a reader of PSM2 magazine I used to go down to the news agent buy it every month and because they had DVDs with, um, they'd basically speak over game footage, um, mm. probably eight, nine years before that became a thing on YouTube. And they did like DVD commentaries on on games. And by listening to those, I really got to know the team's personalities. And I guess, yeah, PSM was really ahead of the curve in, in terms of making the writers the kind of forefront of it. And and then I, I got the job and then I went to the office in Bath and obviously I was sat with all these voices and faces I knew from the magazine, you know, <laughs> in, in my actual 3D space, which is really, you know, quite a, quite a buzz. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was back then, like the office was tiny and it was like above a Thai restaurant in the middle of Bath and it had like a really small, scrappy, kind of felt quite independent and... Um, sort of not very corporate, like it was just small offices of small close-knit teams who knew each other incredibly well, knew each other's sense of humor. Every magazine had a distinctive personality. Like when you went into the Edge office, it was always uh, dark with jazz softly playing in the background, like some kind of, um, you know, like these, like people would joke about Edge is probably like that, but it really was. Um, and yeah, it just felt like a really, it just felt like I imagined it would because it, it came across in, the, in those old games mags that these were, you know, tight teams of people with strong personalities and yeah that was great being a part of that um I mean I I just left school and from like living in you know quite a rough part of Glasgow and had no idea of re of the real world at all I'd been living with my parents and suddenly I was on my own in Bath and you know I'd got a room in someone's house and it was just like a total baptism of fire in terms of life so I, even with the job which getting my head around that I also had to figure out how to like live, how to do washing and feed myself and not die. <laughs> <It's>, yeah, <laughs> it was quite intense, but it was it was amazing though. Like, yeah, PSM two was such a good mag back then. Like, really funny and full of daft ideas, and it was great. Like, actually getting to come up with those daft ideas and do the DVD commentaries as well, which was you know, I a lot of them are on YouTube, and it's really weird listening back to. Um, the earliest ones because I've got full on thick, uh, mumbly Glaswegian accent, which I quickly had to kind of sharpen up a bit working for, a, <laughs> you know, a large media company. So it's weird hearing this little confused little Scottish boy <laughs> wildly out of his element, but it was amazing. Like it was just a, you know, it was have, having a job at that age. Um, but mm. not only that, but a dream job already. It felt like a bit of a cheat. Like, oh, shouldn't I've had to, you know, strike struggle a bit for this? I'm just, I'm just here doing what I w always wanted to do. Yeah, it's mad. Weirdly, my day job now 
is it, are in those offices. So I'm, you know, I, I never worked in them. I, this is Seven Dials, right? Yeah. Was it like a magazine per route? Like, was it structured like that, or were you mixed in with other people? I think some magazines there was two to a room, but we were lucky in it. We had a whole room to ourselves. And there was a few side desks that freelancers would occasionally pop into, but it was basically yeah. our whole room. And um, there was a, there was like a wall. Um, the edge was through the wall, but it was behind a bookcase. So it was like a sort of hidden, you know, if you moved a few magazines, you'd see into edge. So it was like, <laughs> so it was like a bit of a, a fake, you know, divider, but it was basically our own room. Um, oh, nice. And we got told off a few times for them by playing music too loud. Again, another <laughs> cliche of what you imagine oh. edge to be like, but. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love, I love the idea of like edge existing in like a Narnia realm that you have to go through a bookcase to reach. That's just... <laughs> yeah. Or like the bat cave kind of thing. Like, you know, move these two magazines and the shelf will, itself will come out and yeah. Except Batman doesn't um, come out and tell you to stop playing FIFA so loudly at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm curious actually, Andy, like um, was there one thing that kind of won you the role? Do you remember? Was it like, um, was it like a writing sample you sent in or was it a writing sample you did during the, the interview? Like, what, what do you reckon landed it for you when you were that young? Years before I got the job, I, I was writing reviews a lot at home just for just for fun. And I basically sent some to PSM and never heard anything back. It probably just ended up in a pile of mail or, some, or someone looked at it and went, oh, is this nutter sending in, <laughs> you know, unsolicited <laughs> reviews or whatever. And, you know, nothing happened. But then they did a, they, they had like quite a, uh, Dan Griffiths, the editor at the time, had cl- a really clever idea because they wanted to hire a new staff writer, but instead of just putting a job ad out, like, you know, into the usual places, they advertised in the magazine and they, like, framed it as, like, PSM2 idol, you know, like a pop idol thing. Mm. And so mm. the idea was that it was just, you know, you still had to send in samples, a CV, do an interview. It was like a, just a normal job ad. They just did it in a way that it might attract people who, you know, readers of the magazine. Um so I applied to that and sent this. I actually sent the same reviews in because I, you know, I was happy with them. And this time they they seen them and um, I got invited for an interview, but <clears throat> which yeah. was quite surreal because I went to Bath. You know, I got I got like a really overnight like mega bus or something from Glasgow to Bath. <laughs> um, I was absolutely tired and bewildered. Um, went for the interview and I remember like I really vividly remember being in this meeting room with Dan Dawkins and Dan Griffiths. Um, who was the ad and dep ad at the time and, and doing the interview and just being like, I must have looked like, a, I don't know, you know, just this little Glaswegian kid, like totally, all, I was all, I remember being really red in the face from just the stress and just confusion <laughs> of like being out of my comfort zone in such a, a crazy way. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I apparently I thought I did all right, but I, I, was, I learned later that my interview was a disaster. <laughs> really? All right. Yeah, like apparently I was just like, you know, I just was just a sort of muttering, um, <laughs> you know, probably looking, you know, not looking him in the eye and staring at the carpet. I just, you know, but they, they liked the writing samples. Um, but, but what happened was I actually didn't win PSM2 Idol. Nathan Irvin, who you both know, yeah, yeah. won PSM2 Idol. Um, and I thought, well, you know, that you know, you know, good for him, but that sucks. But then they decided to just um, that shows you this was pre-recession. Um, they decided on a whim just to hire another staff writer, and so I was the, <laughs> the the you know the runner-up, and so I got the job. And I think like Nathan was really confident and really good at like 
apparently he like bossed his interview and he was really great at talking to PRs and like being you right. know like a, the kind of face of the magazine whereas I was the little gremlin in the corner you know doing the words <laughs> like Nathan was a great writer as well I'm not diminishing you know Nathan <laughs> as a writer but I feel like that I, I don't think that anyone really said that but that's the vibe I got like I was <laughs> yeah that's why I got the I got the gig they're like let's let's hire a freak who can do dynasty warrior <laughs> get reviews <laughs> Yeah, so that yeah. that was a, a bit of a, an odd way into the the industry, but because um, I, I I would I think I stopped reading PSM for a bit. It was my I remember my mate tapping on my window and passing the issue through and going, "You should apply to this." So I guess I got him to to thank for for all this. Is there yeah. is there any other job interview where like the person who's interviewing you is probably someone like who's in your world is sort of famous to you? I mean, it's such a crazy thing the idea of like being interviewed by people who you grew up reading because yeah that increased the pressure as well definitely yeah, like it's yeah. a nightmare that, that, that anyone freaks out and that that does i was always slightly miffed and this is just because i'm an uh, absolute ego maniac when i did interviews for staff writers it was so obvious they weren't familiar at all with like anything i'd ever done like i've never seen more people look as unimpressed with me <laughs> And it's like great. Like when I was there, I was like, "Shit, it's greener!" I can't believe it. I remember like um, Geraint and Jez walked by, like when I was sitting in the future entrance, waiting to go into the interview, and I was just—I I almost went into meltdown at just the sight of those two going past me. Let alone being stuck in a room with one of them for half an hour, actually having to talk to them. It's just a wild, wild thing. I remember they asked yeah. me stuff like. Um... They were asking me really like basic stuff like what's the difference between a publisher and a developer. I remember them asking me that, and I remember me instantly replying and feeling very good about myself for knowing that. Like they were, I was trying to <laughs> suss out like if I was, you know, if I was actually, you know, really into this stuff or if I was just angling for a job. You know, I get you. Like, um, it's funny actually because uh, you, your story about sending in writing samples, hearing nothing, then sending in the same samples. I did almost something exactly like that, where I sent my samples to play to the senior staff writer which is exactly who you don't send writing samples to um and like i didn't and i didn't hear anything back and then i got hired to replace that same senior staff writer i kind of like the idea that he had to clear out his desk and somewhere in there was my printed out copy of a zone of the enders 2 review <laughs> that would later go on to get me the job replacing him like there's something kind of kind of beautiful about that but uh yeah my um, that um that age is the yeah the when we were doing this, like my my sample <laughs> reviews were for SSX Tricky and Metal Gear Solid Two, and sort of games of that era, like oh, mm. yeah, two thousand and one, nineteen ninety nine. Mm. Kind of, yeah, yeah. PSM Two Idol itself dates it as a concept. You know what I mean? I hear <laughs> yeah. that and, like the big early noughties energy to that. So uh, yeah, and it's like a, such a long time period. But what are your personal highlights of working in games media? There are, are a few that come to mind. I mean, a lot of the things I look back on, I. Uh, as positives as you know getting to interview people i mean devs and and stuff who was like, i was like a genuine you know proper fan of so getting to sit and talk to tim schaefer about full throttle which is you know one of the first games i really loved um getting to talk to harvey smith for almost two hours about the first level of deus ex and Ooh. getting to talk to romero about doom for an hour as well just reminiscing about him making doom and um you know speaking to ken levine for a, a you know 45 minutes but bioshock infinite before that came out there's not many opportunities for you know to do that in this life so i feel really you know 
privilege to have gotten that opportunity. I mean, all the traveling as well, like, you know, I went from never leaving Glasgow to suddenly going to Japan, the States, you know, all over Europe, Scandinavia, and visiting game developers as well. Like, I guess that's sort of seeded my current interest in like how games are made and the people who make them. And which has led to, you know, like this new career shift and wanting to be more involved in that. I remember when the PS3 first came in, it was really exciting being there for like a new console coming in. Mm. And because of, I guess, like diminishing returns on tech, all the consoles after that didn't feel quite as exciting. But going from PS2 to PS3, even though the launch games were a bit of a, I remember a sort of feeling of, being underwhelmed when we fired up resistance fall of man and went is that it <laughs> but it was, still, <laughs> it was still cool to be like there when the first PS. there's actually video footage on youtube of the moment when the first ps3 came into the psm office and um, if you type I, I don't know what you'd search for it like type psm3 you know ps3 arrives in office or something and you'll see a, a video of all us you looking very young unboxing it um so i'm glad like stuff like that's been you know, save for posterity. But yeah, that was really, really fun. I think when like the other consoles came in, there, were, there wasn't nearly as much of a sort of ripple of excitement. But when the PS3 came in, there was people poking their heads around the corner and, you know, squeezing into the game's cage to have a look at it. And, and yeah, that was, that was fun. But yeah, there's, mm, there's so, I mean, yeah. it's hard to, 18 years, there's a lot, been a lot of moments there, but yeah, it's been basically all good. E fan fest, Andy. You're gonna miss that as a journalist. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I got one more in before I left. I went to <laughs> uh, last year's, which was its return after uh, COVID, and yeah, uh, uh, I, I almost feel like I'll, I'll just like I, I'm going to end up missing it. I feel like I might just go as a punter <laughs> and then try and get into the press room and just pretend I'm still a journalist. Just, <laughs> but yeah. I feel like you're basically like a patron saint of eFanfest, you know, to an extent. Like you, you're kind of part of the furniture there a little bit. Um, so, uh, yeah. But I did always, I did always regret missing out on that as a journalist because everyone was like, even if you know nothing about Eve Online, you've got to go to this. It's basically Games Journal Christmas. Um, so uh, yeah, was it you called yeah. it Games Journal Summer bre- uh, Spring Break? Yeah, it's been. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Uh, that was good. Journal's yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, so Andy, um, that's uh, it's great to hear your sort of memories of um, working games media. So I'm curious how your Alien Isolation book is coming along because last time you came on, you were in the the throes of getting it funded. Now it is funded, which is awesome. So um, I'm assuming you get to keep working on this in the background while you're doing your new job at Devolver. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's funded now. I think it's um, 122% funded. So um, the, the sort of pledges are still rolling in, which are at this point I know pre-orders um, for the book. Um, yeah, I mean the writing's ongoing. I'm just having to juggle it with everything else. But I'm set my I've set myself end of Jan to get it finished. So mm-hmm. as soon as it's mm. finished, it'll be sent to the publisher, and then they'll do all the hard stuff: the printing, proofing, mm. binding, shipping, and all that. So it'll be out of my Not hands. Specific. But yeah, it's yeah, it's it's been really fun. I've you know been playing replaying the whole game all the way through and taking you know filled up the bulk of a notebook with just a billion observations that I'm now having to hammer into some readable copy but yeah it's it's, it's going well and i just can't wait to actually get a, you know an early copy in my hand and go i i manifested this i turned my obsession with alien isolation into something tangible 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we both backed it, didn't we, Matthew? Yeah. So I'm excited to read it. Should be good. Um, yeah, really cool. But uh, I'm excited to see that kind of come to fruition. So, Andy, last up in this section, then, before we um, we get to some uh, game review scores chat, is um, what have you been playing lately? And now you're free of games media. Do you think it will change your playing habits at all? I mean, I'm sure you both know that when you when you write about games for a living, it's impossible to just play something on its own terms. You're constantly analysing it or thinking... Oh, that was a cool moment. I should write something about that. So, I'm looking forward to not doing that and just, you know, playing games on their own terms, just purely for my own enjoyment and for myself. Um, right now, I'm playing uh, Persona Five on the Switch OLED, which is uh, just a perfect game for that handheld format because there's so much clicking through text and not doing much between dungeons that it's perfect to have it in a handheld format. Um, I just got an Xbox Series X, so I've been doing the Game Pass thing of downloading everything on there, Halo Infinite, etc., Forza Horizon 5, because I just got a a new 120 hertz OLED TV, and so Mm -hmm. I'm playing playing a lot of uh, Xbox stuff in blisteringly high frame rates (laughs) and super crisp uh, visuals. Um, I just reviewed Pentiment for the Gamer, which has turned out to be my last ever review as a journalist, and that, that was a great way to go out because it's probably my game of the year. I really love Pentiment. Um, but yeah, that's mm. that's my main thing at the moment. I'm oh, I'm playing. Um, I've been playing a bit of Session actually, the skateboarding sim, um, which oh, yeah. is left early access and is is really good. But I've also been playing a lot of the PS, uh, the Xbox 360 version of the original Skate on backwards compatibility. But I feel a bit guilty oh, yeah. spending 500 quid on a Series X and just playing an old game from 2007 on it. <laughs> but it's still so it's still great. The original skate really holds up like amazingly well. Um, but yeah, that, that's... oh, that's all we that's all we do on this podcast is buy next gen consoles and play <laughs> old games on them. First thing I install was Shadows of the Damned. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> Complete misappropriation <laughs> of the hardware. Um... <laughs> No, that's cool. Yeah, I think it does change your habits fundamentally. Um, I was curious, have you played Signalis yet, or Signalis? I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Is that. That seems like your sort of thing. Yeah, so many people have messaged me saying you've got to play Signalis, and I've got it on my Switch, but I've not played it yet. So I think that's going to be a, a, a Christmas sat on the couch, um, you know, whiling away the, the festive hours type game. Yeah, I looked on how long to beat, and it's eight hours long, and I'm like, yep, I can accommodate that. Yeah. That's fine. I just um, um, it's twenty. Yeah. I just bought a DS Lite actually on eBay because um, I really felt the pang to play Hotel Dusk, which I'm sure has been spoken about on this podcast many times. <laughs> so I'll be playing. Uh, I'll be playing Hotel Dusk over over the break as well. Oh, what a Christmas game! Yeah, definitely. Uh, I will. I will mourn the articles that won't won't happen now <laughs> as a result of that playthrough, Andy. That would have been uh, sublime to read your takes on that. Um, Okay, great. Well, we'll take a quick break then and we'll come back with some uh, game review scores chat. Back to the podcast. So, uh, for this episode, we asked Andy if he'd be up for revisiting some old review scores to see if he'd change anything. Um, Andy, I'm really curious how you uh, how you felt about this exercise and uh, what that process was like for you revisiting a bunch of old scores. Yeah, well, I, I'm kind of a obsessive 
a data holder and so i've still got a folder <laughs> full of word docs from when i was at in bath working on psm2 you know of all oh, wow. um and i went through a lot of them and like nothing really jumped out as like a score that i really regretted um but as as i got you know as i went forward in years there was a few things that you know stuck out so n- none of these are like massive um, I gave this game ten percent, and I wish I'd given it ninety five percent. But there's a few <laughs> where maybe I've you know might have missed the mark slightly, or you know should have gone higher slash lower. So yeah, so most of them are quite. Some of them are quite recent, but yeah. We um, when we did it, I think it was more like I think like Matthew, one of yours was Red Steel, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> the inevitably, and then like yeah, but that's like an infamous howler. <laughs> yeah, and then also the. Oh, that's when the Twilight, no, the um, Skyward Sword Ten came up as yeah. well. Um, but then you stood by that, didn't you? Yeah, so, uh, sort of. Yeah. I keep seeing it's. It's funny actually. There's a lot of um, Edge this month um, has kicked up a lot of forum back and forth in various places because they kicked Sonic's face in um, violently and um, gave God of War Ragnarok its lowest score. And it, you know, it triggers the. It triggers the same old kind of people bringing up certain things. And I just love that a lot of people are like, if they're making the argument that Edge is shit, the reviews they bring up are inevitably one that I've written. (laughs) 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 I have like single-handedly ruined Edge's good name with my bad scores. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because I I think on the episode we did, I I also picked Assassin's Creed as one that I scored too high, the original Assassin's Creed, because I did think it was kind of duff and stuff like that so i'm not expecting andy for it to be like you know uh outrageous but mm. i was i was it was more an excuse to get you to audit your your library of um, <laughs> reviews really and pull out some memories so yeah you've got eight of them in total right so yeah. um do you want to fi- go into the first one yeah um it's weird but i'll just add that it's weird with scores that it's something people really fixate on and we'll talk about for 50 pages on a forum but when i put a number on the end of a review i don't really think about it for more than a few seconds i just write the copy <laughs> and then instinctively just go yeah reads like a 79 and writes it down <laughs> like i don't know maybe some other writers more ache over their scores more but i never have and uh, yeah. just like that the studio's metacritic bonus is doomed <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah uh so fairly recent uh, i've lost all sense of time i don't know if this game was recent or not but um you know soma um the frictionals uh first non-amnesia horror game Mm. Have you either? Mm. Have either of you played that? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it wasn't for me, but mm. I admired the craft of it. You know, that's kind of where I stood on it. Yeah. Well, I give it eighty for PC Gamer, which seems reasonable for what it is. But I feel that I really, really feel I should have stuck a nine on it because ever since I reviewed it, which might have been twenty eighteen, maybe. Um, I've, I think it's earlier than that. Yeah, maybe though. even earlier. I think it might have been like 16 or 15 yeah, or something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Ever since then, I've been, I think about it all the time and I'm always referencing it and I'm always, you know, watching clips on YouTube and I've replayed it a few times since. And like, I think any game that makes that much impact on you. And I think the story as well is like probably one of the best stories a, a video game's ever told. Um, and, and one of my favorite sci-fi stories, you know, of any medium, like really, really the ending really gets under your skin and really, you know, freaked me out a little bit. The sort of uh, existential nature of the ending and, and stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> cool. I, I give it 80, but I, I should have slapped a 90 on it. Yeah, I'm, maybe it just left you in such a place of like dread and confusion that you just weren't in a, a headspace where you <laughs> yeah. could give this game the score it deserved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I can sort of see why it appeals to you as well, Andy. It's like that, uh, 
you know, that very strange underwater kind of like almost alive feeling kind of machinery around mm. you and then these strange creatures that pursue you. I mean, it seems a little bit, a tiny bit alien isolation-y. Oh, yeah, very, superficially, yeah. you know? Yeah, so I can see why it's very but, you. Um, yeah, I've, I've, had, I've had things like that, though, where you review something and then you just keep thinking about it. And, and I do think some games take a while to grow in your affections or maybe, like... The, the initial shock of playing them once that gets out the way you can start appreciating like like my my you know very fervent support of um hotel dusk and last window for example you know to hear us speak about it on the podcast you'd think you know i gave those games nines and i didn't you know i gave them eight out of ten and i consider them some of my favorite games of all time um now and that was because i think they were they were like growers or they were like sort of nostalgic mood pieces and I almost had to develop a nostalgia for them mm. f- to sort of unlock what they were really about for me, maybe. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, Soma and Hotel like... Dusk, very different vibe, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> um, I, one of those places I would love to hang out, one of them, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think as well, like there's, a, there's like probably the biggest sort of flip-flopping I would ever do with a score was between an 8 and a 9 or between like a high 80s mm. and a low 90s like that that's just like something where picking a low 80s or an 8 always felt like playing it safe and I was always at the mindset of you probably should play it safe because I came from the era of like play giving San Andreas 99% and being like well it's obviously not even just for the zero missions in that game and like the driving test was, bits, uh, it's not definitely not that was Dan Dawkins on a I was I was there when he settled on that score for San Andreas because <laughs> like we're given Vice yeah. City 97 and he thought well it's at least two points better than Vice City <laughs> yeah and it just creates massive headaches when GTA 4 comes out. And you're like, well, what do we give this now? And then everyone gave it lower. And it's like, oh, okay, fine. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a good one, Soma. Um, what's your next one, Andy? Um, so I was I was surprised at myself for this one when I look back at what I, I reviewed Assassin's Creed 3. Um, that was when I was on the editorial studio with uh, with Matthew um, mm. back, in, back in the day. And um, I gave it um, 80. And I, I really don't see what happened in my brain to make me think it was an 80 because i think it is truly one of the worst triple a video games ever made like 40 <laughs> i'd give it now like it's a dreadful <laughs> dreadful game like it's it's like a, i remember the like it's it's so full of they they basically they took away all this all the agency from assassin's creed assassin's creed what one and two had some they were still linear and, and constricted in some ways but there was an element of like you could you know take a different route a take a different approach to an assassination three really went full-on linear scripted stiflingly linear instant fail states if you wandered through the wrong bush for half mm. a second <laughs> um and i remember the director of the the game um you know coming out and saying that's just how we wanted it to be you know we you know it, it was by design like that um i think there's some nice scenery in it and uh the environments are quite nice the time period is interesting some you know quite fun story moments but a- as a game like it's so even all the animations, the climbing, the fighting is all really labored. You feel like you're just triggering canned animations by pressing buttons. Like there's no, I don't feel mm. organic. Or I just, I just really hate that game. And I played it. I played it recently when they did a, a fairly recently when they did like a remaster of it, and it just reinforced that. So I don't know why I gave it eighty. Really don't mm, understand yeah. that. I don't. Well, what was what was? Maybe it was just the excitement of a new Assassin's Creed. Or I don't yeah. know. 
Maybe it was, I mean, it could yeah. have just been sort of like the joyful buzz of working in the games hub. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it was such a good vibes that you could, you know, I imagine you were having a good time in the day because we tended to have a good time in the games hub. <laughs> yeah, that could have easily coloured it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing is that that game was like, it was not, it's not like it felt next gen or anything, but it felt pretty advanced visually mm. compared to other games of the time. Like I remember like the morning mist when you go through the forest in those games, even on 360 being like, oh, this is, this is pretty and the Snow effects looking. as well, uh, like crunchy snow that left trails in it and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, so uh, 80 is high, but I can see, I can sort of see why there are things to sort of like about it, even in retrospect. Also made that game made the um, terrible error of letting you play as a much better main character in its opening chapter yeah. before putting you in the, the, foot, uh, the, you know, putting you in the shoes of a much more boring character. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Connor, the ultimate yeah. tough hang. <laughs> he was pretty bad. Um, okay, cool. That's a, that's a good one, Andy. Um, I'm really curious if Max Payne Three is going to come up. Actually, if it doesn't, I'll uh, I'll ask you a, a little bit later <laughs> about it because we 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 replayed that lately. So, um, what's your third one? Um, this is a more recent one. It's the first review I did for the Gamer uh, last year. It's 12 minutes. Either of you play that? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm aware of the controversies around it and what happens in the plot. Yeah. So uh, that's all I know about it, really. Yeah. Well, it's unrelated to that, but I gave it uh, it's, it's five star ratings on the gamer, which took a bit of getting used to having worked for percentage based outlets for for years. But I gave it um, three out of five, which uh, in hindsight is incredibly generous. I think <laughs> I, I think it's a a deeply bad video game, and I should have given it one star. I think I was. <laughs> I think I was caught up in the fact that Willem Dafoe's in it, and I love him, and his presence as the kind of antagonist maybe maybe distracted me from the fact that I think it's just a horribly clunky, full of itself, loves the smell of its own farts, because it's got a Hollywood cast. Uh, just the, the 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 time loop thing is interesting, but it's so incredibly clunky and laboured, and the the sluggish transitions between if you fail a loop, you have to go through all these same repeated long animations again and again. And it, I just I really, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, three is, three is generous. I should have given that a one. Uh, <laughs> I just, I love the idea of just being blinded by your excitement for Willem Dafoe. <laughs> but, but still only to the tune of three stars. <laughs> I mean, he's great in it, but it's, uh, they got um, Daisy Ridley and James McAvoy. Um, James McAvoy's got a great, lovely Scottish accent. They've got him playing an American and Daisy Ridley as well. Like, why? Why, why do they have yeah. to be American? Just, I don't know. Just everything about it rubs me up the wrong way. Yeah. yeah, that was a strange choice. Um, yeah, I feel like the phrase "loves the smell of its own farts" should be used in reviews more. <laughs> um, that feels like something that only comes up when you're sort of doing a podcast about something. But like, yeah, not any of the games I do PR on. But you know, like other games, <laughs> that'll be fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, good one, Matthew. Were you a fan of Twelve Minutes? Did you play this one? Yeah, I was really excited for it because it had, you know, uh, not a detective element, but a mystery element, and. You know, I like time loop stories, and I was really intrigued by how it was going to spin out this, like, one location. You know, the idea of, like, a thriller set across three rooms. You were like, wow, I can't believe, you know, I can't wait to see how they do it. And actually, it's just not very interesting at all, really. And you, you just find yourself replaying the same old kind of crappy sequences again and again just to try something, you know, arbitrary to see if something different happens. And, um, the, the end of the story, like where it actually goes, is just garbage. I don't know if I'd give it one star. <laughs> I, might, I, might, I might throw it two. Um, um, <laughs> but it's, yeah. 
I, I, I was definitely excited for it, and it, it just, it just didn't, it didn't really land for me at all. Five stars a hard scale to go to after like oh, doing nineties, yeah. so, like so, so a hundred, like point of a hundred, you know, like for what, like nine years, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, well, it's more nuance. I feel like five star, you can giving a five star isn't the same as giving a ten. Like it's easier to give five stars. It feels a little bit more throwaway to me. You know, mm. I'm, I'm just sort of like. You know, three star. You know, like a three star film, you would go and see. So, like a three star game, you're like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you'll have a good time with it. And four stars, you're like, yeah, probably, definitely consider this. And five stars, like, yeah, why not? Just absolutely, this is this is great. But it's not like the difference between a four and a five. Just I don't know. It doesn't feel there's enough of a gulf there to kind of express a kind of jump to masterpiece. <laughs> so all kinds of shit gets five. I, I, VGC <laughs> score um, out of five, and I find it really difficult. Like, I had no idea where to put Splatoon at all, because I was like, yeah, it's just a great Splatoon game. That feels like three stars, and everyone lost their fucking minds, because Metacritic's <laughs> like, we gave it a 60. And I'm like, I didn't give it a 60. I gave it a three stars. Those are, those are very different scores, Metacritic. But, you know, what can you do? <laughs> But, a five star yeah. isn't a hundred percent. It just isn't. Like uh, <laughs> anyway, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Cool. So I, I think we're in your fourth one, Andy. So what's your next one? Yeah. Um, so I reviewed Disco Elysium for PC Gamer, um, mm. and I gave it ninety-two, which is incredibly high. But um, I, I, this might have been talked about before on this podcast, maybe when Phil Savage was on. But PC Gamer never gives more than ninety-six percent. And never has, I think, for at least the UK side. Um, and I just mm. ninety six is like, you know, Phil gave Kerbal Space Program ninety six. It just says this is like one of the best games you can play on PC. You know, full stop. And I should have given that to Disco Elysium because, um, you know, again, that's another game like Soma that I look back on and I've been thinking about ever since. And I, you know, follow a lot of um, accounts on Twitter that post quotes from it. And every time one of them comes up, I go, "That was a great video game." Um, so. <laughs> you know, I on, only give it ninety two percent, but I should have given it the the, the symbolic ninety six. Right, this is the best shit possible. Play mm. it. Yeah, I yeah. think I think the ninety six was used for like, I, I think maybe Kerbal was the only time it was used while I was there, and then I, it was the score that Half Life got, for example. Yeah. So like, it's yeah, definitely powerful symbolism have, to it. Um, have they given any big scores the last couple of years, like higher than ninety two? Um. <sighs> Did Norco get a really high score? Yeah, Norco did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's meant to be like legit. Oh yeah, absolutely. But but there's there's like legit, and then there's you know, I have confidence. This is like an all timer, and definitely like yeah. I don't know. Disco Elysium had Disco Elysium definitely for that. Like I would say for like like the PC gamer audience feels like this is going to be extremely your shit. I'm really confident you're going to think this is a masterpiece. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, yeah. I I only gave like a few nineties in my time on on gamer, but I think there were always games that had that kind of, you know, sense of being like the kind of game that a PC gamer reader would really yeah. you know, appreciate. Um, but I gave her story ninety mm. percent, and I you know right. no regrets there. I think that was a really interesting, very PC gamer type game. Yeah, yeah. I think you were like one of the first to review her story as well, Andy. You were like um, early on the Sam Barlow train, um, if I recall. Uh, Ninety three, I think you gave to Alien Isolation as well. So, yeah, you did. Yeah. Uh, you were pretty pretty sparing. So I always had to try and make sure that you got some of the big reviews. Yeah, and it's also why I had to make sure that some of our freelancers didn't break the review scores by giving them <laughs> like yeah ninety five percent to like I don't know fucking 
bass fishing 2022 <laughs> or something. Um, that never happened, but you know, just an exaggeration. Um, yeah, okay, cool. So what's your fifth one, Andy? Um, so yeah, I mean, I was going to throw, one of them was just me jokingly throwing Alien Isolation in there saying I should have given 1996 <laughs> as well, but that's just in, in my ridiculous head canon. 93 is probably about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that... um, I think we gave it our game of the year at the, at the time, didn't we? Yeah. As well, like 2014. Yeah, that was good. Mm. Um, I suppose like that was a weird one though, in the sense that we were like still much higher than everyone else, or yeah. at least it, it felt like it, right? Like um, we went to bat for it, but not everyone else did. That was kind of strange, but yeah, yeah, that was um, that was quite shocking actually. The score split on that one, you know, where it, cause it didn't it get like it was very US like... slash UK divide. I think with scores, yeah. I think yeah. Because the word in the office, because you know, you, you, you people were reviewing it at the same time, and you started hearing like the scores coming out of the UK, and you were like, you know, because I th- yeah, I like said we gave it a, a, a nine, and um, yeah, I remember thinking like, is this going to be this? And so I, I kind of sort of sniffed around to see what other people were doing. You were like, oh yeah, okay, this is this is going to be really legit, and yeah, I was amazed. Cause it got like you know four or fives from a couple of places, and it's like what? What happened there? Mm, Crazy. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> You're a PR now. You have to be nice to journalists, Andy. <laughs> What's your next one, Andy? Um, so, yeah, this is another one uh, for PC Gamer, and it's one that I kind of, it's more of a personal regret. And uh, that, so I reviewed the original Pillars of Eternity, uh, which is one of my favorite mm. RPGs. Uh, I gave it 91 or something, and, you know, I, I stand by that. Then I reviewed the second game, uh, Dead Pills of Eternity 2, Dead Fire, and I give it 88, which is like a very good score, you know, for... I mean, Obsidian games seem to be like high 80s, they're like the high 80s studio, I think. Yeah. Um, which is not, you know, it's not faint praise or a backhanded compliment, they just, they just make it, you know, that's still a high score, but I give it 88, and I, I just feel like um, apparently Dead Fire like underperformed sales-wise, and... Um, you know, was a bit of a dud for them, which really has, you know, I wrote an article recently saying how much that annoyed me. And I think Josh, Josh Sawyer, who was like the creative director of that game, you know, retweeted it and seemed to appreciate that someone out there was going to bat for it. So I wish I'd just get it from a personal thing. You know, 88 is probably about right for what, for the fact that it's still a great game, but it doesn't, it does a lot of what the first one already did. So there's not that newness or that, um, mm. So I, I wish I'd just given it a ninety, just to like give you know the meta score a boost and just hopefully you know help maybe sell a few more copies because it's <laughs> a crying shame that something as good as Pillars Two, which is beautifully written, massive sweeping nautical seafaring RPG, where you sort of sail between islands and get into amazing adventures and stuff. The fact that that was apparently a, a dud for Obsidian has always frustrated me because it's a great mm. game. So if I'd stuck a few more percentage points on there, I might have. You know, help to alleviate that a bit. You leave journalism yeah. the man who killed Deadfire. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think, Andy, as well, that like there was a sort of a big genre renaissance that happened with some of these 90s PC genres that kind of died out at a certain point and people just stopped appreciating those things? Like, is that what happened to Deadfire, do you think? Or just or was it just they'd had like one massive long RPG and kind of got out of their systems the first time? What do you reckon the reason was there? Yeah, I think... The fact that it looked, because they've purposefully tried to match the aesthetic of those old Infinity Engine late 90s games, you know, the pre-rendered backgrounds are done in the same style. So at a glance, it probably looked less flashy and new as um, Divinity, which was Mm -hmm. very much taking the crown for the the CRPG isometric type game. So there's probably an element of it looked old-fashioned, 
the fact that it's a sequel and people probably thought, well, I didn't play, I don't, I don't have 80 hours to play the first Pillars of Eternity, so I won't bother with the second one. Maybe that, like maybe they should have just called it Pillars of Eternity Deadfire and not put a two on it. Um, this probably, I think a lot of things conspired against it, um, but I'd say to anyone who likes deep, reactive, well-written RPGs with cool settings and like those kind of quests that start off like a simple task and spiral into something a lot more complex, which is like a very Witcher kind of quest design just to play pillars too because it's it's got all, all of that what's the what's mm. the big prison island that you did that breakdown of yeah that's great that's fort deadlight which is like a yeah I, I interviewed the guy who designed that and it's kind of like a it's almost like a hitman level you're sort of trapped on this this fort a pirate fort in the middle of the, the ocean there's no way off it and you're trapped in it and you've got to kill the leader the pirate leader and he's obviously mm. surrounded by his entire every pirate you know, now do well and his army is hanging around him. So you've got to, you can do sort of hit Manny, you know, set a rigger chandelier to fall on his head and all that sort of get him drunk <laughs> and push him off a ledge. That So it's like a, yeah, and that's just, that's just, it could easily be a whole, if someone did an indie game that was just fought Deadlight and it was different ways to kill this pirate lord, it'd do really well, but it's just one quest out of 30 amazing quests. So mm. it's worth playing just for that. That's cool. Yeah. Did you get a chance to chat to um, Josh Sawyer about Pentiment, Andy, um, before before you uh, before leaving the role, or um, did you uh, did that not come up as an opportunity? Yeah, yeah. Did I before the first wave of previews, Gamescom previews went out? I I just emailed uh, Obsidian directly, the head of comms, and said, "Can I talk to Josh about it?" Just cause, you know, I wanted to you know shine a bit of a spotlight on it because it was an interesting game but I wouldn't would be lying if I said it wasn't a self-serving element of I just want to talk to Josh Sawyer because I really like him so <laughs> yeah that was that was good okay cool so yeah what's your second to last one um, Resident Evil 3 remake which was fairly recently I gave 58 should, another one I should have given way lower I think I was <gasps> too, oh. too kind to that way too kind um, Ooh, that's, that's got a bit of a reaction interesting. Well, I think it's because we've got some people on our Discord who really like it and i got to say like I think when it's it's a bit more... I played it quite a long time after I played Resident Evil, Evil 2 Remake. And so as something to blast through in a weekend, it wasn't overtly offensive. But I'm really curious to hear what your your take is on why this is disappointing. Is this as a fan of the original or it, it versus the 2 Remake? But like, what are your kind of... Um, what disappointed you about it? Well, I think the... Um, one of my, I had a few issues, but one was that the first encounter with the Nemesis is great. Like it has a you know, a sense of uh, being a dynamic kind of presence appearing in, at the worst possible time and you have to react to it. And it felt, you know, really tense and scary. But after that, I thought that was going to be the whole game. It was going to be you versus this AI, you know, this nemesis with cool, interesting AI. But really, mm. after that encounter, it's just a lot of boss fights, scripted boss fights. Mm. Um, and then this, the game just seems to descend into a lot of quite ropey action set pieces. And they even kind of removed some of the reactivity of the zombies like i loved in the re- the two remake like shooting a leg off and watching them slump to the ground or the, an arm mm. drop off and topple down some stairs whereas three seemed to take all the reactivity out of the zombies i think maybe as a result of there being more of them because of the city setting and maybe the engine couldn't handle having all these you know reactive zombie bodies so it just felt like a really a big step back in a lot of ways um mm. too much the, the too much shooting like there's that bit in the hospital where you're just like you know it's like a, a siege and you're just sh- shooting millions of zombies um with a machine gun i don't know i just felt like it really it's quite a hollow experience like it, the presentation initially fooled me into thinking it was you know something a bit more akin to the resi 2 remake which i i loved 
I think I might have mm. given that 90-something mm. for PC Gamer. But, yeah, it really, really disappointed me, that Resi 3 remake. And I thought it was, like, very short and didn't, yeah... I feel like 58 was a bit a bit much. I'd probably drop it 10 points and give it 48. <laughs> <laughs> no, like that's a good that's a good explanation. I think it it's like an apples to apples comparison. It is like it's worse in so many ways. Like um, I also think it's got kind of like a a bit of a kind of like a sort of almost cone of disappointment element to it where it starts like um i really love the the intro in that apartment where you're playing as jill i think it's in first person briefly mm-hmm. and then you get the sense that everything's a bit fucked up outside and then she looks in the mirror and it becomes it just it sets a kind of spooky tone that it doesn't really follow through on um and then you, when you're going through the city streets i think it looks you know as nice as the resident evil 2 remake does um in terms of bringing that setting to life but then yeah I, the hospital is a bit more like Oh, it's another one of these fucking the hunters or whatever they are, just jumping out at you and you wasting a load of ammo to take it down. And it's not, it's not that scary. And it goes on for ages. So yeah, I kind of get it. It um, does, f- it, it does feel like there is a bit of a reassessment of it, though. I definitely see like a few people championing this after the fact. That's why when you originally said it, I was like, is he going to say lower or higher? Because <laughs> some people have returned to it, but I like. I must admit, whenever I hear someone championing Resident Evil 3 Remake as being, like, better than the 2 Remake, it always has that slight air of, um, like, Alien 3 is the secret best alien. <laughs> Where I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you talk, uh, you know you're talking to <laughs> Yeah, I know, well, as I said it, I was like, this is a terrible metaphor uh, for this particular audience. <laughs> yeah, well, I love Alien 3, but I would never claim it to be the secret best alien. That The original alien is the best, yeah. but Alien yeah. 3 is yeah, don't don't be too many. But Alien Three. Look, yeah, no, I'm probably just making the the three connection, and I'm because I'm, I'm very lazy like that. Um, yeah. I might have to actually rewatch that on the new TV in blistering 4K. You can really see those bold, sweaty <laughs> men's heads and amazing, incredible detail. Yeah, can really see Julian Glover's crags, uh, like in uh, yeah, unprecedented detail. Um, yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm curious, Andy. Does this has this dimmed your enthusiasm for the Resi Four remake at all? Where are you at with that one? Um, I, I've got no enthusiasm for that because I, I love Resi Four and I don't feel like they can add anything to it. Like, it, I don't think it's like such an art. I really love the art style of Resi Four. I feel like more polygons and glistening sweat, you know, shaders won't make it any better. I don't know why it exists really, but I will play it and I bet it looks beautiful. But it's just a, a remake. I don't think needs to exist. I don't think any of the, any of the remakes have necessarily made any any particular stretch of any of the games like better. Like some of them have kind of captured the spirit of them, but they've definitely made some of the sections worse. And my fear is like like I thought Resident Evil Two remake was like front loaded with like the the very best stuff, and I thought the, the the second half of it wasn't quite as strong. And you know they've shown off the village siege from four, which looks really shiny and very kind of kinetic and exciting, but I. I do have like a real fondness for like all of Resident Evil Four, and I'd be sad if they've like taken an axe to like the car- yeah, any of the castle stuff. That's based on nothing at all. But I feel mm. I feel like they did streamline a little bit in two, and I wouldn't want them to do the same here. But I think the other thing there is like um, there's like uh, in theory just there's triple the amount of assets to make for Resident Evil Four remake than there is for Resident Evil Two remake because it's just it's just such a lot going on in that second half of the game that i think people forget about yeah. so you do get the castle but then you get to the regenerators and like that island yeah. and then 
yeah, it just it just there's like there's loads and loads of stuff for them to make, and it's like, are you are you going to make all of this stuff? Mm. I like it, it's quite a tall order. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, okay, what's your last one, Andy? Um, so I gave another PC gamer one. These are all PC gamer ones, basically. Um, I gave everybody's gone to the Rapture uh, sixty nine, and that's another one <laughs> like Soma. I feel like I was I should have maybe you know nudged up by another ten points because it's another one that. Uh, lingers in my mind quite a lot and i think the presentation and the environment design um is like really top tier incredible stuff like that 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 town and the surroundings and the country pubs and the caravan park and all that it's just it's just an incredible bit of you know world building and atmosphere and the stories again really haunting and like mm. so this i don't think I'd, I'd replay it purely for the there's a, a scene in the caravan park we are in like a school hall and you hear like the sort of echoing voices of all these kids that were like putting on a play to try and like, you know, distract them from the fact that the world's ending. And you sort of hear the echoes of that. And I just found it really, har- really harrowing and unpleasant. So I probably won't play it again because of that. But it's, again, <laughs> I feel like 69 is probably a bit harsh on it. I think, and functionally, it's quite a, it's, it's just a, you know, you just slowly walk around a village oh. looking at ghosts. It's not a very fun game to play. So maybe that's what <laughs> coloured the score. But I feel like yeah. in, in hindsight, I should have been a bit kinder to it. It maybe also arrived when there was a tiny bit of walking some fatigue. Mm. Um, like I think it's like it's slightly later on in that genre's lifespan. It's before Edith Finch comes out, of course, which is like the you know kind of like the last word on that genre in a lot yeah. of ways. And uh, not to say that no one else should make any, but do you think that's there's anything in that, Andy? That maybe we're just not as bothered by that point. Yeah, I think it. I mean, walking sim has been kind of uh, is not as much of a. A derogatory term at the moment but maybe when that came out it was it had yet to become mm. a way of just describing a game about walking around being told a story um and the, the fact that it's so incredibly slow like there was a button you could hold to like walk slightly faster which was like <laughs> why even have that button it was like you went from a slow shuffle to a stroll um <laughs> yeah it, I, I thought that it, it isn't a good it's not a good game as no. in a game but it but it, just that um just that that world building in that just the, the melancholy tone of it all just really got under my skin, and I do think about it quite a lot. It's yeah, I think it succeeds on its own terms as a bit of world building. Personally, like even if the the story I didn't totally click with, I didn't really understand what was going on to be honest. Um, but like the just as like a place that I hadn't seen that was underrepresented mm. in games generally, like uh, the British countryside was kind of up there. Matthew, sorry, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say, yeah, it was so fucking slow. It's not, 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 not a very useful take. It was so <laughs> slow that I could see buildings that I was meant to explore, and I thought, can I really be asked to walk over there? Because I'll have to walk back, and I just don't know if I can bring myself, which is kind of the opposite of how you should be feeling about that world. Um, I thought it was a real drag, this game, personally, and that really overshadowed it for me. So 69 too high for you, then. Yeah. You would have gone lower. lower. Yeah. lower. <laughs> I think uh, it's quite funny that this ended up with the nice score of all the different games. Um, <laughs> this is the... <laughs> um, although I'm pretty sure I used 69 a few times as well. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think it also it was also like a pretty just out of nowhere PC port of a PS4 game. Mm. So I, I can see why it didn't... We weren't like massively into it. This did also lead to that very good feature though where Phil reviewed the pub in it, having worked <laughs> yeah, in a pub. That was, that was like... <laughs> That was good. Yeah, good feature. There. Great soundtrack as well. Yeah, very good. So that was your last one, right, Andy? Yeah, that's it. I, I was going to ask you a bit about Max Payne 3, actually. Like, had you ever 
because I know you gave that a slightly lower score than some other outlets. Is that right? Because I just remember the the shitty email you got from that guy, <laughs> which I think you talked about before a few times. But um, have you ever revisited it and changed your mind about it? Um, we played the PC version a few months ago. We're pretty blown away by the difference between mouse and keyboard versus a pad, for example. Yeah, well, the the amusing thing about that email where I got help, you know a lot of abuse thrown at me is that I gave it eighty six percent. That was a good score. Oh, right. Yeah, I like I liked it. I, and, oh, I yeah. thought you gave it like crazy low. No, no, that's, yeah, that's I don't know why I thought that's that. why that email was so funny because he really went, you know, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, off off the rails based on a high a highest score. Like I, I really actually really liked it, and I did revisit it um, maybe like three years ago, and I think it's just a brilliant, uh, like one of the best kind of cover based linear shooters because Rockstar just took that format of a cover based run through corridor shooting people and just threw all the money in the world at it and it really shows like the lavishness and all the explosive particle effects and Max's jacket wrinkling when he runs and all that's just like a <laughs> big expensive movie I, yeah, I love it I can't yeah I'm oh, glad to hear it wow, yeah. and I'm sorry for misrepresenting you <laughs> death threat over 86 <laughs> Oh, that's ridiculous. Now that's that's why you got to leave games media eventually. Just the the people, the 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 list, the readers. You have to stop interacting with them at a certain point and get on with your life. Well, did you know I um, I, I emailed that guy back? Um, ten years later. Oh no. Yeah, ten years later, I emailed him. I went, uh, sent him a screen grab and gone. Just wondering how you felt about this, and he said, "Oh, sorry, man. I was an annoying little kid back then. So it's got a happy ending." <laughs> Are you best mates now? Yeah, he's my best man. No, no. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. It'll be funny if you email back in like 10 more years and went, no, I should change my mind. Max Payne 3 is shit. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, um, okay, good. All right. Uh, so, yeah, Andy, um, very uh, best of luck in your next role. And uh, cheers for coming on and talking about your um, your games media history. I'm sure if you ever do have any more takes in you that you want to sort of uh, launder for content, we'll be glad to have you back. So um, where can people find you on social media? Um, yeah, just on Twitter, at UltraBillion. All my stuff is there, including a link to my Alien Isolation book. If you're into that game and you want a whole book about it, then you can pre-order it. That. That's good. Your Mastodon, did you give any of the other ones a go, Andy? Or uh, yeah, I was on not, I was on Hive for a bit, but it's the slowest app ever made, and also it's apparently ridden with security flaws. So you know, I'll just stick with Twitter while it's still the boat's still floating. <laughs> Same brother, um, Matthew. Where can people find you on social? At media? Mr Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. Uh, the podcast is Backpage Pod on Twitter, patreon.com slash backpage pod if you'd like the uh, two additional podcasts a month. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.